at the time, it was the most devastating thing that had probably ever happened to me because my entire identity was wrapped up in, in my job and in that job. And, uh, and so I was just absolutely crushed. So getting back to rock bottom, that is a huge rock bottom, right? And if I was looking, if I was writing the story, I mean, that would be it. And that's the point where I would go to rehab and I would get better and I would come back and prove the world wrong and blah, blah, blah. But instead, I went home and I kept drinking. And eventually I did go to rehab again. And it was a really great experience. And I got out and I kept drinking. <laughs> so it's not, it's just not as simple as people like to believe that it is, both in terms of people who write stories about alcoholics and addicts and people who make policy about us, because it is a disease and it cannot be compelled by, you know, this, this false sense that we're going to hit a rock bottom and then we're going to get it because that doesn't by and large happen. Welcome to, and then everything changed a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Erica C. Barnett, an award-winning political reporter who covers addiction, housing, poverty, and drug policy at her blog, The Sea is for Crank. Her new book is Quitter, a memoir of drinking, relapse, and recovery. Welcome, Erica. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you here, especially during this pandemic. When we first talked months ago, you had plans to go to Europe. Oh, Europe. Do you remember? Yeah. Oh, I vaguely do. Yes. <laughs> and instead, it, instead, it's just been, you know, um, days and days and days of working, the days bleeding into each other. Uh, weekends no longer exist. And um, now I'm hoping for maybe Europe in December. Okay. Oh, wow. December. I have friends who are hoping for late summer, but are you just deciding to cut your losses? I, I don't want to break the bad news to your friends, but it just seems incredibly <laughs> unlikely to me right now, just given What that- if I was my friend and I was using my friends as a mask and I'm actually going in late August? So you just broke it. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm joking. I just thought of that because, no, it's true because uh, I've been doing this kind of casual polling of people. And I think you're right about that. So your book is out on July 7th. And here in Seattle, we both live in Seattle. I have heard you on the radio. I've heard you on our local NPR station, KUOW. And I know that you have been covering news here for quite a bit. And you had worked at The Stranger uh, for quite a while. Is that right? How many years were you there? I was there for almost seven years. And those seven years at The Stranger, would you say that that was sort of uh, pivotal in your story and in, in what your memoir ended up being about? Oh, definitely. Um, I think, so my, my book is about relapse and recovery, and it focuses a lot on my time as, um, as a writer, both in Austin and in Seattle. Um, and I would say, you know, I started drinking heavily um, when I worked at The Stranger. I think that um, it is definitely a part of the culture of a lot of alternative weeklies, um, or was. I mean, I know alternative weeklies are are dying right now, and The Stranger itself is uh, not publishing in print form anymore for the time being. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think uh, what what was sort of a casual habit and something, I mean, Honestly, when I lived in Austin, I didn't like drinking. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't, I found it to be a way sometimes to feel more comfortable in my own skin. But at the same time, I didn't like the way it made me feel. Um, and I think working before The Stranger, I worked at Seattle Weekly, and it was just a little bit more of, I guess, like for lack of a better term, an adult culture meeting. Um, to me at the time, an extremely boring culture. It was a lot of people that had families and went home at night at five. And The Stranger was just, you know, I mean, it was still coming out of the 90s alt-weekly culture. It was a party paper. Um, okay. And, or at least I perceived it that way. And so, you know, I started drinking to fit in. And um, I think that's a lot of people's story. You know, you don't feel comfortable in your own skin and um, drinking is a way out of that. 
And what decade of your life were you in? Were you in your 20s or your 30s when you were at The Stranger? <laughs> I was in my 30s. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, so I started at The Stranger when I was, um, let's see. Uh, now I, I'm having to do math because I'm in my 40s and that's that's what being in your 40s is like. <laughs> so let's see. I was in my, I was in my mid-20s um, when I started. And then I was... 32 when I left. So I would say I was in my mid to late 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't drink in college at all. Um, I was oh, just, wow. it was just not, yeah. I, I started drinking very, very young um, and kind of moved on to hard drugs. Um, I mean, quote unquote. Uh, and Can you talk um, about that I, a little bit? Like when you say drinking very, very young, can you give me a little background about that? Of course. Yeah. Um, I had my first drink when I was about 13. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was 13, um, at a friend's house, um, you know, it was the, let's see, early nineties and we were sort of like the quintessential latchkey kids, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so we would just sort of spend the summers hanging out, um, drinking, smoking weed, smoking cigarettes, and just doing all the stuff that I think kids do. And, one of the interesting things that I discovered in my book was, although at the time, 13 was really, really young, particularly for a girl to start drinking, mm-hmm. um, now it's much more typical. And I was, I was a little surprised by that because I thought I was like such a badass, um, <laughs> you know, drinking at such a, you know, I was so cool and I was so ahead of all my friends. And, um, and of course, now, I mean, kids just get to those milestones up so much earlier. So, um, so yeah, so I, so I, I drank as a kid pretty young. And who um, were you I got, drinking with? I assume like were your, were your peers in drinking? Oh, my dirtbag friends. Were they 13 too? <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Dirtbag yeah. friends, go on. Yeah. Thir- <laughs> I would say 13 to 16. Um, you know, I mean, we were all kind of, I, I talk in the book, you know, I was, I was very much attracted to kind of burnouty drug druggy type people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, and I don't mean to denigrate that because I was absolutely one of them. I just happened to be good in school. So it never really affected me. Mm. Um, but I went, I moved, I, I moved on to smoking pot and doing acid LSD mm-hmm. like all the time. And that was really my, my drug of choice. So when I say hard drugs, you know, there's been a lot of research into LSD and other hallucinogens. I don't really consider them quote unquote hard drugs because I don't consider them addictive, mm-hmm. but that said, they are highly illegal. So that's, that's what I was into as a kid. And, and then that's in pretty college, young to do that like a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty young. Um, that was all through high school until I was about 16. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, uh, when I got into college, I think I just decided I need to buckle down. I'm going to have to get a job. I'm going to have to get good grades or at least decent grades and, uh, and graduate out of here on time. Cause I had a scholarship mm-hmm. that I was racing against. So, um, I just sort of, I just sort of dropped all of that. So did your family, do you think have an idea that you were using when you were in high school? Absolutely not. And the reason I say that is we've talked about it quite a bit because my um, my mom, of course, wanted to know, and they have not read the book yet as we're recording this. Oh, I'm, really? <gasps> I've said, and this is just negligence on my part. I am sending them a copy of the book as soon as I go to the post office next week. But <laughs> um, but my mom did ask. She's like, "Well, is there anything in the book that I need to be concerned about?" And the first thing I told her was that I cuss in it a lot. <laughs> and of course, her response: she's like a, you know, a nice Southern lady, and she said. I'm just, I'm sure there were better words, uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, which I said, okay, mom, maybe there were. That's really cute. <laughs> I know. I know. And then the other thing I said is, you know, I did a lot of drugs in high school and she, she's like, yeah, I know you've told me that. I just, are you sure? <laughs> I was like, yes, mom, I'm sure. And she said, well, I just don't understand. Where did you get them? And, uh-huh. <laughs> and I was like, mother, like at school. I mean, drugs were just absolutely ubiquitous, even, you know, in the the, the bygone days of the 1990s. And where were you growing up, by the way? What, what state was that? In the suburbs of Houston. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I mean, it was, you know, it's just, it was very, very easy to get drugs. And I'm sure it is now as well. And uh, so, so my, so my parents do know that now, but I don't think they had any idea then because I, was pretty good at holding it together. And like I said, I got very good grades. I got a scholarship. 
Um, and I was, you know, in some ways a model student. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like by the time you got to college, you kind of, uh, you pulled yourself back. So you had this sort of innate ability to kind of uh, be responsible and, and give yourself some boundaries when you needed them. Yeah. And, and that's what was kind of most surprising to me about later on, fast forwarding to my late 20s, what was so weird to me and what it took me a really long time to grasp was that I didn't have control over my drinking because I had always had control over drinking, drugs, grades, jobs, absolutely everything. Mm. And the fact that suddenly I didn't have control over this thing and that it was controlling me, I didn't understand it. And I didn't react in a way that reflected that. Mm -hmm. I'm also interested about your feeling about working at the stranger. So I think you were mentioning that you, you felt more comfortable. It took the edge off. It helped you relax and it helped you socialize and feel comfortable with the people at the stranger. Did you align with the ideals and kind of the politics of the stranger? Did you find uh, camaraderie there at all without drinking? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, um, and in fact, after I left the stranger, I left with a coworker of mine who had been my boss there to start a new website just with us doing news and politics. Mm -hmm. So the, the politics of the place and just, you know, what, what we as the news staff specifically were trying to do was right up my alley. And it was absolutely, you know, why I felt at home there. Um, just as a workplace. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that tripped me up was I've never felt like the cool kid, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to be as cool as I thought those other people were. Just all the people that worked there seemed impossibly cool, impossibly glamorous, mm-hmm. um, impossibly connected to you know, the next after party, the, uh, the cultural, uh, events that I would never have known about just living in my little local politics bubble, which, I mean, frankly, you know, one thing you learn when you cover local politics is that most people don't find it very cool Mm -hmm. and most people don't care that much. So, you know, and it was frankly, kind of a toxic culture outside the new staff. The new staff I worked with, um, was wonderful. And I'm friends with actually all of them to this day. But the culture of the place was one where, I mean, I described this in the book a little bit, um, where there was just constant kind of casual sexual harassment. There were constant rape jokes. Hmm. There was just an, a feeling, and there was sort of constant, um, you've heard of the concept of negging, you know, where you say negative things to somebody to get them to feel like they need to impress you. There is just, there's a lot of nagging. So, um, and as you know, living in Seattle, it can be kind of a hard place to make friends. And, you know, and I just, I didn't have a big friend group outside the city hall world. And it seemed like an opportunity to suddenly have Mm -hmm. all these instant friends. Uh, You were in a place that is supposed to be progressive, uh, a a weekly, an alternative weekly that's touts itself as progressive. I've read it. I know it is progressive. And and you're in Seattle, which is a city that is really ahead of the curve in a lot of ways. And yet it sounds like there is this toxic culture, which doesn't seem to match up. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, this is one of the things that people don't, like to acknowledge or realize or understand about a lot of alternative weeklies, I would say, and I, you know, not just the stranger, but um, th- that's the one I worked at for the longest. Um, is that it is traditionally a very male-run culture, and it's very hard to be a woman in an alt-weekly environment, or at least it was when I was in that world, which has been mm. you know a while now. But um, it can be very sexist. And it can be um, a place where you really have to fit in to uh, be one of the guys, whatever the guys are at the place where you happen Mm -hmm. to be working. So, you know, so at The Stranger, you know, it was the group of the guys who worked there. And I'm not, you know, going to name any names or anything, but there's definitely a reality of misogyny with people who are progressive in other ways. I mean, just look at the Bernie campaign, you know, I mean, this, this is not, this is not a big secret, but the fact that it happens inside of a newsroom and a publication that 
professes all these progressive ideals and even progressive professes mm-hmm. feminist ideals, um, I think is kind of shocking to some people who've just never been inside that it, culture. It is very surprising to me because that to me seems like that would be the counterculture you would go to, to protect yourself from the patriarchy, you know, and from that kind of misogyny. And so it's, I think it's a really important point to make. And I, and I give a couple of examples of this in my book. Um, but I, and I, here's one that I can't remember if it's in the book or not, but I mean, there was a lot of like casual porn being played, you know, uh, like, for example, you know, there when the Paris Hilton sex tape came out, there was sort of an implied like let's all go watch this cuz it's funny. And and I thought so too. I mean, and this is this has been the case at every alt weekly I worked at. So again, it's mm-hmm. not just the stranger. You try to fit in. I mean, at the place I worked at before I moved to uh, to Seattle, there was just this culture of everybody stops working on production night for a couple of hours so that all the guys can go out and get high in the yard. And, and I just remember it was me and my, you know, female fellow female uh, news editor sitting around just waiting for the guys to come back. Mm -hmm. So they definitely set the tone and called the shots. For sure. For sure. And that's been the case at every, every publication I've ever worked at until I set out on my own and started uh, a website with my coworker from The Stranger, and that's mm-hmm. when it really what was, changed. What was that website? It was called Publicola, and it was a state and news politics website. Mm-hmm. It's now defunct. It got bought by a magazine um, that has since, um, well, disinvested politics, I would say. So here you are. You're working at The Stranger. You're describing the kind of environment you were working in and, and what you were basically living every day. Where did the alcohol begin to get out of control? Do you have, do you know when you realized, huh? Uh, boy, I would say, I mean, this isn't, this isn't a pinpoint of the, the moment when I realized, huh? Um, but it is the moment when I thought I have to do something. Um, and that was in 2008 when I was living with a guy and he also drank very heavily and we were getting in all these crazy fights and I was just doing things like staying out all night, not because I was doing anything, but because I was just wandering around drinking or passed out mm. somewhere. Um, and like you would think like, y- y- duh, those are obvious red flags. But again, I was in very, very deep denial that this was even a possibility. And so at that point in 2008, I decided to go to detox which I thought was basically all you need, needed to do because I knew that it was dangerous to try to detox without medical mm-hmm. supervision. But what I didn't know is that you really do have to do a lot of work after that. And I know that to me today, that sounds very silly. It sounds mm-hmm. very obvious. But at the time, I thought all I needed was just a clean break. And once I had that clean break, I wouldn't feel sick anymore when I stopped drinking, which was becoming a problem. Mm. And I would be able to actually just just stop cold because I'd always been able to stop everything before when I wanted to. Right. And your partner, when you decided to get clean, were you still with that partner that you drank a lot with? I was. And did that partner say that they too would go clean or were you hoping to stop drinking and come back to the same situation? He, uh, no, he stopped drinking as well, um, which I was a bit surprised by um, because I don't think that he thought he had a, or I didn't think he thought he had a serious mm-hmm. problem, but he poured out all the booze in the house and um, and he quit as well. He was very supportive of the idea because I think he was pretty fed up with me by that point. Did the people you worked with at The Strangers, particularly your women friends, notice or point out to you that you seemed like you were drinking a lot? No. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think it was so normalized at The Stranger. And also by that time, in fairness, I mean, I had started drinking in secret. So it's not even that um, people would necessarily notice I was drinking more than usual. I mean, going out and having nine drinks with my friends was not a big deal. That was not, I mean, that might not be a Tuesday night, but that would be a Saturday night. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I was drinking more on top of that. And I think, you know, probably I can't get into their brains, but I would think that they thought, wow, she just seems really hammered. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. But nobody really, um, except for my, my male best friend, um, uh, said anything about it and, and my partner, because they saw it, you know, the most intimately. Mm-hmm. And if you would go back home for a holiday or see family or friends from your earlier life, did they notice it? Yes. My mom absolutely noticed it um, instantly. I mean, mm-hmm. she just has a BS detector that you wouldn't <laughs> believe. I mean, despite what I was saying earlier about her not knowing about um, the drugs, I think the difference um, as an adult is just, you know, the, the severity, the degree. I wasn't in control of it. And she, I mean, I remember she busted me one time um, when I, I can't remember exactly what year this was, but it was pretty early on when I came home for a visit and I was drinking and she said, and I thought I was hiding it really well. Mm. And she said, so how long have you been drinking again? And I got so mad. I was just, I was just furious that she would accuse me of something that was so true. Um, (laughs) How dare she? How dare she? I mean, I was, I was furious. And, and this happened more than once. I mean, things like this. And one time I, I aborted a trip. I mean, I went home early because I was so mad. Mm-hmm. How long was this phase of your drinking? Cause you mentioned that you got clean and I, I'm assuming that means that, you know, you did do the relapse cause that's part of your memoirs title. Yeah. <laughs> so how long were you, uh, like in, in some like really brief strokes, how long do you think you had the, the, the major problem the first time? And then how long were you quote clean? I mean, it, it wasn't more than a few months. Mm-hmm. It was never more than a few months at a time. And then I would say it went on from, I don't know, um, 2008, you know, you could maybe date it even to earlier 2007 until, uh, 2014, the beginning of 2015, which is when I stopped drinking and have not had a drink or used drugs, although I didn't use drugs really anyway, but, you know, haven't had a casual puff of pot since. Okay. So then the, the time that you thought that you were good to go and going to stop drinking, how did you end that phase and begin drinking again? Unlike other relapses, I remember this one really vividly because it was the first time, I guess. Um, and I worked at the stranger, um, near a liquor store, like very, it's very close to a liquor store. And so, um, I was walking to meet, um, my partner at the time. And, um, and I just thought, you know what? I deserve this. And I walked in and I bought a couple of a couple, maybe three little bottles of tequila and I downed them in an alley and I chewed some gum and I went out to meet him and he immediately smelled it on me. And I kind of had the same reaction I had with my mom, which was, how dare you accuse me? And, um, and of course he was right, but I, <laughs> what, it, what it was, was it was, how dare you accuse me of not being honest? Mm. Not even how dare you accuse me of drinking, because obviously I'm an alcoholic. I just went to detox for alcoholism, but mm-hmm. it just felt like such an affront, even though, of course, he was absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Is it because you didn't want to really see yourself that way? Is it because you had an idea of what alcoholics were like and you didn't feel like that was you? Yeah. I mean, I had always been able to control everything. I mean, every aspect of my life, I had felt very successful in controlling. And this was just outside my experience. And so it couldn't be true. Mm-hmm. It was just I, I, it wasn't even that I had a, a disparaging idea of what alcoholics quote unquote were. Um, it was just, I'm not one of them. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I am a person who has it in control. So when you think back now in hindsight, do you have any sense of what triggered you that day, that day to go get the tequila? Was there anything that was inciting for that? I mean, triggers are such an interesting concept in addiction. I think, and I think kind of a problematic concept because if I had to identify a trigger, I would say it was really beautiful that day. And it was like this, this gorgeous, I believe autumn day is how I'm remembering it. And the sky was really blue and I felt really happy and celebratory. And so that I guess was the inciting event But the reason I say triggers are sort of problematic is if you're an alcoholic, I mean, in my experience, almost anything can be a trigger. 
you can feel bored, you can feel happy, you can feel really sad and want to medicate yourself for that. I mean, it, it because it's a brain disease that um, has an actual, you know, physical and chemical component to it, I think it's a little dangerous to say, these are the triggers that I need to avoid if then you're going to say, and then I'm good. Because for me, every time I relapsed, it was nothing. I mean, it was, I'm walking through the grocery store and, oh, hey, look, I forgot there was a whole alcohol aisle there, you know, wine aisle, or later on they started selling um, liquor in grocery store. So, oh yeah, right. The liquor aisle. I guess I'll just drop some vodka into the, into the basket and you don't even think about it, or at least I didn't. Do you think that the idea that it, you were sort of a late bloomer, which I know you've described yourself as before, a late bloomer to this kind of alcoholism, it, it was such a strange thing that that was part of you that it was hard to accept as well? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's perceptive. I think um, I felt like I was a really successful person in a lot of ways. I had really, uh, I wanted to work at at Alt Weeklies since I was probably in high school. I'd wanted to be a journalist since I was much younger. Done that. Wanted to get out of Texas. Done that. Um, you know, it had pretty successful relationships, had friendships, just just everything seemed to have fallen into place. And so, and, and this is one area where I do think I fell into a bit of stereotyping of people with addiction is that I thought, well, I'm good. Like I am here. I'm a fully formed adult. It is impossible for someone to become an addict. It would have happened by now. Mm-hmm. And because I, because I did used to drink and I was the kind of person in, when I lived in Austin and I would go to events, I would literally dump my drink out in a plant if nobody was was looking because I didn't <laughs> like drinking. And I, and mm-hmm. I did that many times. So I just thought I was exempt. Uh-huh. And I know that in an earlier conversation, you'd, I'd asked you about your rock bottom moment. And I think you said there really wasn't a rock bottom. No, uh, there were many. And I think that, um, I think that rock bottom is a dangerous concept too, both for political reasons, because I think people um, want to make policy based on the idea that people just need to be compelled to hit their rock bottom and then they'll get it and get better. But also mm-hmm. because ultimately the only rock bottom you can hit is death. And um, for me, there were lots of events that anyone external would look at them and say, oh, obviously that was her rock bottom. I mean, I was down at the corner of Rainier and Henderson, which um, was not a very safe spot at that time. And I was, had been on the bus and they kicked me off the bus because the, um, the, you know, it was the end of the night and I'm sitting there and I was miles away from my home. I could barely walk. And so I hitchhiked to my house um, with a random man. And like, is that a rock bottom? I mean, it should be, but I drank for years after that. And when I finally decided to stop drinking, it wasn't, I mean, I lost my job. Um, I I should mention that, (laughs) you know, I got, I got fired from my job. Yeah. Talk about like the last weeks before, you know, things really ended with drinking for you. Yeah. And this is, this was the hardest part of the book to write in some ways, although um, there were harder parts as well, just talking about the impact that it had on my friends and family. But, um, you know, I had already gone to rehab once and my work approved of that. And I had come back and I had relapsed and it was very, very obvious to everyone that I was drinking on the job and that I was coming in drunk. And so I think the writing had been on the wall, the wall for a while. Um, I went to detox again at um, another place. This was probably uh, the fourth or fifth time I'd been to detox by, mm-hmm. by now. And I was taken in by a couple, I was taken to detox by a couple of people I worked with who are in recovery. And I remember, and one of them was, um, I'm not sure she was at the time, but later became the publisher of the paper or of the magazine that had bought Publicola. Mm-hmm. So um, she, uh, and I remember we were in the car and I kept saying, I just don't want to lose my job. I just don't want to lose my job. And she didn't say anything. Um, but then I came back in and a few days or weeks into that, probably days, 
Um, I passed out in the bathroom and was found by someone who worked there who I didn't know. And, and after that, um, a couple of days later, I got called in the following Monday, I got called in to the, my boss's office and, and he fired me. And I was so confused <laughs> because I had never been fired from anything in my life. I mean, I had never even been laid off. And so again, this just like was so far outside my experience of things that could happen to me that I just, I just thought, what? Like I argued with them. I was like, well, what if we did this? What if we, we did this? What if I go to rehab for six months and come back, you know, and then I'm on probation and blah, 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 blah. But you know, they didn't, they didn't choose to go with any of my options. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was devastating. I mean, it was like, at the time, it was the most devastating thing that had probably ever happened to me because my entire identity was wrapped up in, in my job and in that job. Mm. And, uh, and so I was just absolutely crushed. So getting back to rock bottom, that is a huge rock bottom, right? And if I was looking, if I was writing the story, I mean, that would be it. And that's the point where I would go to rehab and I would get better and I would come back and prove the world wrong and blah, blah, blah. But instead, I went home and I kept drinking. Mm. And eventually I did go to rehab again. And it was a really great experience. And I got out and I kept drinking. Oh, wow. So it's not, it's just not as simple as people like to believe that it is, both in terms of people who write stories about alcoholics and addicts and people who make policy about us, because it is a disease and it cannot be compelled by, you know, this, this false sense that we're going to hit a rock bottom and then we're going to get it because that doesn't by and large happen. It does happen for some people, but I think a lot of that, that narrative is sort of concocted post facto by people, um, who want a clean story or, um, or just made up by people who don't know what they're talking about because they've never lived through it. Mm -hmm. So you're unemployed and you're out of rehab and you're drinking again. Do you have a partner at this time? Not then. Nope. I had been dating um, an ex-boyfriend who I had moved out to uh, Seattle with originally. And, but even he, and he, he was an, a tremendously patient person and a very loving person. And um, even he was just like, I cannot do this anymore because I was chaos so no, I was by myself. I was staying in a little apartment um, pretty close to where my uh, previous partner that I lived with lived. And, uh, and I was just, just basically drinking, riding the bus, going to the food bank, and that was my life. Hmm. Did anyone check in on you? Yeah. Um, my, my very closest friends, you know, were still coming by from time to time just to see how I was doing, which of course was terrible. Um, but, um, but yeah, people were, people were very concerned. Um, I mean, I had an ex-boyfriend who I hadn't spoken to in a very, very long time who came by just to see if I was dead. And that was actually, um, yeah, I mean, that, that could have been a wake up call. Right. But mm. it wasn't. And, um, and the, the wake up call and I, you know, I don't know, I don't know where you want to go from here, but I can talk about what actually Please. happened. And yeah. Please do. So the wake up call, quote unquote, um, just kind of came one morning when I got up and I thought, well, it's another day. And I guess what I'm going to do is what I do every day, which is go out and get something to drink because I was at the point where I was, you know, having hallucinations and getting very, very sick if I didn't have alcohol right away. Um, and, and that is, that is an absolutely horrible experience to have every day. And I was, you know, just, just, I mean, this has been going on for at that point, months and months and months. And, um, and I said, okay, um, I'm going to go buy, um, some wine and I'm also going to call detox. Mm -hmm. And I'd been to detox, like I said, many times at that point. And I'd been to hospitals, I'd been to emergency rooms. I racked up so much debt, just going to all this, you know, to, to doing all the things it takes to maintain an active addiction, you know, which includes mm -hmm. sometimes in my case, going to the emergency room. So, um, 
I called the detox that I'd been to before, just maybe a month and a half earlier. And um, and they said they had a bed. And I said, great. And I paid a taxi driver. Um, nobody would take me, or at least I didn't ask at that point. Um, so I, ca- I got a taxi and I paid him with a check that was post-dated because I had no money in my account and my cards, you know, I tried my cards and they all bounced. Um, and, um, and I went to detox for five days and I stayed there for as long as they would let me. And when I got out, I didn't drink again. And I can't tell you why, you know, it just, it just happens. And that's how I think it happens for everybody. Even if the precipitating event is they went to jail or, Mm -hmm you know, they were physically taken away from alcohol for a little while. The thing that actually gets you to stop and to stop when you have control over your own life and you can actually make a decision to drink or to not drink is just, it's totally, in my experience, it's unknowable. It's just, mm-hmm. you have that moment of clarity and then it happens. Mm-hmm. And, and you're sober. Yeah. It's been uh, five years and about three months. It's been five years and about three months. And uh, what was really surprising to me about sobriety for me, and I know this isn't true for everyone, but for me, everything just got so much better right away. Hmm. (laughs) Not because I instantly had a job or I instantly had my friends back or the trust of my family or anything, because I definitely didn't. Mm -hmm. But just the ability to think somewhat clearly and the freedom of, you know, I mean, in a weird way, not having a job was freedom because Hmm. it meant possibility and it meant, well, whatever I do next is going to have to be dictated by my own actions. And what those actions are, are completely up to me. And that, that to me was really exciting because I had felt like my life was on a specific trajectory, um, both in a positive way, in the sense that, you know, I knew what I wanted to do since I was very young and I did all the steps it took to get there, but in a negative way, which was, I'm going to drink until I die. And I was, I think, very close to that point. And I mean, I read about people now dying in their 30s more and more of uh, alcohol-related cirrhosis or other, you know, um, alcohol poisoning, things like that. And I realized that absolutely was me. I mean, I was headed there. So things got better very, very quickly. And I did get a job very relatively quickly within a few months. And I worked that job for about a year, went part-time, started my own website um, and uh, got this book deal. And it was all, you know, due to the fact that I wasn't doing this, this one thing that was holding mm-hmm. me back before. And because you'd attached so much to that career from such a young age, I could see how not having that and how being jobless for those first couple of months right out of that last rehab could have been really frightening. And yet it seems like it was outweighed by the freedom you felt. Yeah, it actually wasn't frightening at all because I I felt like I had gotten through the worst and most impossible thing. (laughs) Um, I mean, really, like I, I felt like I cannot believe that I am not drinking of my own volition and I don't really want to drink. I mean, there were certainly times where I was aware of, you know, thinking, gosh, you know, it's what a pretty sunset. It would be nice to have a glass of rosé or whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, not that I'm like a rosé drinker, but this is my fantasy <laughs> where like I can drink like normal people. Um, I like how you have to clarify that, you know, yeah. just so you know, I wouldn't really drink that. <laughs> <laughs> no, what's so funny, so the cover of the book, we um, we ended up going with an empty um, bottle of red wine. Yes, I um, see it, yeah. And I, and I, think, it's, I think it's a really striking image, and, but unfortunately, um, what I drank near the end was like white wine from a box or, <laughs> um, or like the Smirnoff, if I had money. And, you know, like Burnett's or whatever the, you know, Popov or whatever, um, if I didn't. So, yeah, I was a real trash drinker. How do you know, I feel almost, I almost feel like I shouldn't ask this question, but how do you know you're okay now? Oh, I don't. <laughs> I mean, what I mean by that is relapse can happen at any time. I mean, I... I mean, one of the, one of the things that I had to 
learn is you should never say I'm good. Like that's the most dangerous place you can be if you are someone who um, with a substance use disorder is thinking I'm good or I got this. I mm-hmm. try to never, ever feel that way because, um, because I don't. I don't have control over this. Um, mm-hmm. I have a temporary, I mean, as, as Alcoholics Anonymous says, I have a temporary reprieve, but mm-hmm. it, is, it is contingent on me being on top of it and thinking about it regularly and being aware that I can't have just, you know, my, um, my boyfriend, um, he like barely drinks. I mean, if, if he's had half a glass of beer, he's either asleep or slurring because he's Mm -hmm. such a lightweight. Right. Mm -hmm. But I can't have like a sip of his beer Mm -hmm. ever. And, um, and if I do, then what is most likely to happen? I mean, it's possible nothing will happen, but what's most likely to happen is I will want more and I will get more and I know where that goes. Mm-hmm. So I, I never feel like I'm okay. I feel like I um, am very lucky in that, you know, for now and for the last five years and hopefully for good, the compulsion is gone and like mm-hmm. the desire to drink has gone. And then I don't, I mean, except for dreams, I don't really think about drinking or when somebody else around me is drinking, I'm like, oh, right. I used to do that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I never try. I try very hard never to feel comfortable or like I like I have got it. Mm-hmm. Do you find that your family and close friends seem to still have it in mind when they're with you, or do you feel like they've let that part of your history go for the most part and are meeting you where you are now? I think they're meeting me where I am now. Um, I think you know my parents. I think would not um, be very likely to drink around me. But I also think that they, that they too understand that it's not other people that made me drink. It's not other people around me. It's not other people's actions. Uh, it's not whether somebody else is, you know, it's not whether it's a sober wedding or not that we're all at. Um, it's, it was entirely, you know, my own doing and my own internal chemistry and predilections and, uh, you know, genetics and whatever combination of things um, made me, um, an alcoholic that makes me, you know, that made me want to drink. And so if I relapse, it's not going to be because somebody else drank around me or somebody else asked me if I wanted to drink. Cause believe mm-hmm. me, I mean, that happens all the time. Most people, um, who I know casually just as business acquaintances, they don't know that I don't drink or that I'm sober or that I used to have a problem. And so people ask me, Hey, let's get drinks all the time. And I'm like, great. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I go to bars and, um, I, uh, and I get non-alcoholic drinks at bars and it's becoming more and more normal and fine, which is, which is, which I love. Yes. Yes. I've noticed there's a movement. Yeah. Yeah. Well, until this quarantine, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, right. Actually, I should ask you how that is for you. Is quarantine uh, presenting you with any kind of extra stress in this area? No, not in this area, (laughs) in every other area, for sure. (laughs) Um, I think... I mean, in a weird way, quarantine has made me um, more outward focused in terms of alcoholism and substance use disorders, because I know that a lot of people who are in active addiction or who are um, very still still new or shaky in their uh, recovery are really struggling because uh, alcoholism and addiction uh, tend to be diseases of isolation. Some people do uh, drink a lot in public, but for the most part, where people go is to a place of either literal or um, or internal isolation from other people. And so when we're all in forced isolation, it really does make you, um, it, it creates a pressure to drink or to do your drug of choice or whatever it is. And there's also, there's just such a culture of like five o'clock you know, yes. quarantine drinking. And I've, I've been to some of those happy hours, those online happy hours. And it is, you know, I mean, I get it. I totally get it. And if you don't have a drinking problem, um, well, first of all, try not to, to develop one while we're all stuck at home. <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, I mean, it, maybe it's fine, but uh, it does feel like there's just so much pressure to like, you know, have coffee o'clock and then wine o'clock. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, and it's, it's a funny question too, to pose to you because you've mentioned how there wasn't one rock bottom. There isn't just a trigger and that those can be problematic. 
do you feel like you have advice or thoughts for someone who is concerned about someone who might be drinking too much that you think could be helpful? I think what's really important right now is for people to be easy on themselves. And so for someone in recovery who is, you know, maybe struggling or maybe has a slip and they do drink, you know, or they do have a binge or whatever it may be, um, you know, it's what the advice from like Alcoholics Anonymous would be at that point is do 90 meetings in 90 days and, um, and get a sponsor and do all these things. And that's, that's great if you can do it. But on the other hand, I mean, we're all struggling so hard right now. And so I think it's just really important not to beat yourself up. Um, but I also think, I mean, one of the things that somebody told me when I was thinking about quitting was, okay, um, well, maybe you don't need to quit. Just do it for, I think, I think they said a month. And that just seemed completely impossible to me. And which should have triggered my awareness that I had a problem, but of course it didn't. Um, but you know, for people who think they might be drinking too much, it might be a good idea to try to just lay off for a week or two and see how you feel. And if that's really, really hard, um, then I think, you know, it is still possible to seek help while we are all in, um, in lockdown, whether that is calling your counselor or getting a counselor, um, there's plenty of online resources for that. And there's plenty of counselors that are doing phone calls, um, mm -hmm. whether that is going to AA meetings online. One really cool thing now is that you can um, basically go anywhere in the world because everybody's mm -hmm. doing all their meetings on Zoom. And if it's not AA, there's also smart recovery. There's, um, you know, moderation groups. Um, there's, there's just a lot of options that weren't available paradoxically before that are available now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you don't have to talk. I mean, you don't even have to buy into the whole thing. Like if you decide to go to an AA meeting, you can just sit there and listen mm -hmm. and listen for some of it. And maybe it'll keep you from taking a drink for that 30 minutes or that hour or whatever. And then maybe at the end of it, you won't want to. Mm -hmm. It's a really tough addiction to struggle with. I mean, so they're all really tough. And alcohol in this culture, even before the pandemic, is very, very hard. I mean, I, I can imagine it's just everywhere. It's everywhere. And I mean, and everything, I mean, one of the first things that I did when I um, started working with a sponsor was I started writing down every single time I noticed alcohol in the world. Um, you know, everything from like a beer can on the sidewalk to an advertisement to, you know, you go into a place where you don't think there's going to be alcohol like shoved in your face. And it is. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it was just, it was just a constant writing exercise because it is everywhere. and. Um, you know, and I, and I would say for people who, um, don't have a drinking problem, um, I think it is important maybe to sort of, to think about how much you are pressuring other people to drink and think about, you know, maybe you don't know everything about that person and maybe they're struggling. And so there are things you can do online as friends together that don't involve sitting down at your computer with a cocktail. Mm -hmm. It's true. And, and I would, I would just really encourage people to think about, um, about some alternatives because, you know, I mean, addiction is incredibly common and, and, and substance use disorders, um, broadly span a whole spectrum. And, um, and so you might not have a quote unquote addiction, which isn't really a clinical term anyway, but you know, you might be someone who now starts drinking at 11 AM and didn't do that before. And, um, and so and your friends might be struggling with that too. So it's just something to, to, to keep in mind for, mm -hmm. for people who don't have substance use disorders, but, you know, but maybe have friends who do. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like in the, in the short few minutes that we have remaining, do you feel like you were nervous about writing this memoir? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it was terrifying. Um, I, uh, I tend to be a kind of, um, I, I think like a lot of people with in the era of, of social media and, um, and you know, when you're trying to build your quote unquote personal brand or whatever, I feel mm -hmm. like I have curated a version of myself online that is very focused on certain things. And, um, my own addiction is not one of them. Mm -hmm. And so, I think there are a lot of people who feel like they know me who are going to learn a different side of me 
because I'm going to be talking about this so much and because the book is going to be out there and I want it to be read. And, um, and so that is absolutely terrifying. Um, or it was, I'm, I'm getting more comfortable with the idea, but, but <laughs> do you like, ever wake up and think, wait, what did I do? Oh, I I ask you that as a writer myself, as a, as a memoirist myself, because I sometimes have those thoughts. Yeah. There are times that I'm like, did I really write that, (laughs) that I, that I did that? Or did I, I mean, the latest one was like, I panicked over using the F word too much because like my grandparents are going to read this book. And, and I thought, Oh, I wonder, is there any way I could just change that? I mean, and this is like, (laughs) like so far out the door, you know, (laughs) but yeah, it's, it it was a little, it was nerve wracking at first because um, it, it really is showing this vulnerable side that, you know, as a writer and especially as a freelancer, I was sort of afraid at first that like, oh no, this is going to make it, make people think that I'm unreliable in some way as a person mm. because I had this struggle. But what I have found is that with, with the few exceptions, um, people are, people really tend to understand people going through struggles and overcoming them particularly. I mean, I think people find that inspiring mm-hmm. and I've never talk to an editor, um, well, again, with one exception, which I go into in the book, um, or, you know, another writer who said, oh, you, you know, I read your book or I heard about your book and, um, you know, you sound like a real, uh, you know, a real untrustworthy, I'm trying not to swear, a real, <laughs> a real untrustworthy person, you know, uh-huh. um, it's just all my worst fears and, you know, and I do tend to, to catastrophize but all my worst fears have not come to pass. And so I'm just going to keep having faith that they won't. And if Mm -hmm. they do, I mean, what's the worst that could happen? I've already been through um, about the worst. I mean, I hope one of the worst struggles I will ever have to go through in my life. So um, Mm -hmm. I can handle a little criticism. Mm -hmm. Can you tell listeners where they can find your blog and your book and anything else you want to share, your social media handles? Yeah. Um, so on uh, Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Erica C. Barnett. Erica is spelled with a C, Barnett, B-A-R-N-E-T-T. And um, you can buy my book anywhere books are sold. So if you want to go to IndieBound um, to buy from your local bookstore, you can pre-order at your local bookstore, or it's also available on Amazon.com. Great. Thank you so much for being my guest and for helping me share your story with my listeners. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Thank you so much. This has been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode and other interviews you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please do share it with your friends and take a minute and rate and review so that others can hear these stories too. Thanks for listening.